As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Nobody thinks long-term on anything because we're so used to instant gratification. If you Mm -hmm. can take a long view, as I believe you do in your investments on real estate, time is always your friend in real estate if you finance it properly. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure, free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name, episode 565, titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And he is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free. And then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely one that being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff. We've interviewed Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and a whole bunch of others. We got a treat for you today. We got the star of the new reality show, The Deed Chicago, Sean Conlon. How you doing, my friend? Hey, nice to meet you. Nice and to I'll meet your listeners too. Yeah, yeah. And you pumped me up you, right before we started recording. You're like, I can't wait to talk to the best ever listeners. 
I know they like hearing that. A little bit about Sean. He is the owner of Conlon & Company, a real estate merchant bank. He's also a Chicago real estate mogul who went from being a janitor in 1990 when he came to the United States to running a successful real estate business. As I mentioned earlier, he's the star of the new reality show called The Deed on CNBC, which will follow him rescuing real estate projects in Chicago. There's a link in the show notes page to the trailer. Go check that out and then go to CNBC and watch the show as well. Based in obviously Chicago, Illinois. With that being said, Sean, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, I came to America in 1990. I actually worked as an assistant to the janitor, but uh, <laughs> I pumped my resume a little bit as you do. Started selling real estate in 1993. It was suggested I should give up because I was awful. And I stuck with it. And by the end of the 90s, I sold probably around $200 million a year with an average price of 350, which was long before they had million dollar listings. They have all sorts of shows of people who sell a lot of real estate now. And then I founded a company called Sussex and Riley, which at the time was quite cool, which sounds like I was good at Rubik's Cubes, but we were the second largest users of Blackberries in North America in 2000 when they were cool. Mm. And I sold that company and bought it back and sold it again. So that's kind of the gist of it. I want to dig into from 1993 when you started to 99. I've read a couple articles where you were interviewed around that time and you attribute it to hard work. And I want to dig in there. So if we drill down a little bit, what would you attribute the rise in your success as a real estate agent to? Look, I mean, obviously, there are lots of incredibly smart people out there. There are definitely a lot more smart people than me, a lot more connected. And I think what's somewhat inspiring about my story is I'm an ordinary person who did some fairly extraordinary things. So what would I attribute it to? It really was hard work because I had nothing else. So I'd work my day job, finish up at six at night as the assistant janitor, and then come and cold call in the brokerage office. But I ate, sleep, and drank real estate in a particular area, and I was so knowledgeable. It was like learning to juggle, which seemed like a useless talent. I knew every zoning, every lot size. And then one day when all those knives fell on top of me, I was able to juggle my way through it. So I was positioned when they started to build the first three condo unit in the neighborhood and I rode that wave but I was only in the right place at the right time because I was in that place all the time. Mm -hmm. So you were working as an assistant janitor and you're also painting some houses but there were people in your brokerage just for some comparison purposes there were people in your brokerage who were working full-time and when I hear that it's not about necessarily doing hard work. It's about being effective with the work you do, because if you're working only nights, then you're basically working about the same hours that the people are working full time. Therefore, you are more effective with your time. So what were you doing that was more effective with your time? Bingo. I see why your podcast is so successful. You focus right in on the difference. I was incredibly efficient with my time, and I picked something and focused on it. America is such a huge, huge country, right? Economy-wise, if you pick a small part, like Sussex and Raleigh when I started it, two years in, we were doing a billion dollars in sales a year in a couple of neighborhoods. So I focused in on understanding the teardown and the zoning in this neighborhood and what you could build out of. That was my talent. 
that I thought myself that was useless till it became incredibly relevant. Mm. So that's exactly right. I was focused on working a lot. There were a lot of people who worked and did busy work. I would come in at night. I only had so many hours to be focused. Mm -hmm. And I would cold call, which is a horribly difficult thing to do. But it taught me rejection really isn't rejection if you pick yourself up and go again. How did you go into focusing on teardowns and zoning compared to other stuff you could be focused on? That would be some serendipity in that sense that, of course, that comes along if you're out in the mix. I would walk the neighborhood in the evening and I saw a guy building a three flat, three apartments. And I asked him, what if I could sell them as condos? And he's like, well, they don't buy condos up in this neighborhood. So I went and started to do all the research, research. And I sold them in a week from like some really bad photocopied plans. And I'm like, this is the future. And I rode that wave. Hmm. So you came to the U.S. in 1990. How old were you? So I was 21. I grew up in a small village in Ireland, seven of us in a pretty small house. My dad was the most incredibly charismatic man ever, but the worst businessman ever. <laughs> and my mother was hardcore, raised the five kids, and she worked two jobs. So I got a little bit of both, but my dad was a dreamer. And he always believed that America was the place where he could go make it. And when I look at him, he's dead now, and he was my inspiration. But I think he's a great example of, in the end, you only regret the chances you didn't take. Mm -hmm. He wanted to come to America, but was scared to. And so he put all of his faith that I was going to do it. So I was 21 when I came. What's your reason? Why are you such a hard worker, but so focused? As lots of the best ever listeners will probably attest to, we see all these wonderfully dramatic things. And I think one of the reasons the deed Chicago will appeal to people, I'm so very real. And what I mean by that is I have always been driven by fear. While lots of people are driven by the things they want, a lot more of us are driven by fear. Fear of being poor, fear of not being able to pay your kids' school bills or the car payment. That does drive a lot of us. Ultimately, it drives you to real success. But I would be lying if I said I was driven by some great, vision to be in the White House or something like that. Mm -hmm. I was driven because I was scared and I wanted to take care of my family, my parents and stuff, which is the greatest thing I've ever done. So, I would think at this point you are financially stable, I would think, but you're still achieving high level things. Is fear still driving you? And if so, what are you fearful of? Fear still in me because in 2008, I was on top of the world. And I was not paying attention. And I was probably in the hammock when that bomb hit the beach. And I was like, oh, my God, where is everything? So, yeah, I mean, at that point, I had a $100 million fund on the street. We were farming $1.2 billion of developments across North America. So there's still some fear, but I'm an ambitious fellow at the same time. Got it. Okay. So are you still doing developments right now? I own a lot of stuff I've taken back in the downturn. Mm -hmm. And you'd ask me about some of my funds. And it's interesting because when I described my mezzanine fund as a success, it was the return of investment, not return on investment. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that real estate, like hundreds of acres in North Carolina and stuff like that, I still have. But I'm not out there balls to the wall developing because that's not a part-time gig, as I tell people on the show. Right. Outside of the show... What do you focus on from a real estate standpoint? What are your main responsibilities right now? 
some of the chairman of Conlon & Co. So that entails, we have a residential brokerage that probably is nearly 300 agents that will do about a billion dollars in sales this year. We have a commercial division, which I really like to dip in and out of, where we do commercial deals around the country. And that's probably a three, $400 million business. And then the really cool one is the capital markets aspect of my merchant bank. And that's where we structure about three quarters of a billion dollars of loans a year for developers, guys refinancing storage facilities, senior housing, apartment buildings. So they're my main businesses. I'm kind of the rainmaker. Mm -hmm. You got agents, both residential, commercial, and you're also making loans to people who want to buy real estate, primarily commercial, I imagine, right? Yeah, and they're bigger loans. They're CMBS loans and so right. And then I do buy my own opportunistic things. I bought a high-rise site last year, a hotel in downtown Chicago. So I'm not afraid to be in. I just find it quite heated, the market is right now. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that high rise in downtown Chicago for a second? Can you tell us the numbers on it and what appealed to you and how you found it? Absolutely. So firstly, sometimes some of the best deals are hiding in plain sight. Say that is to state the absolute obvious. There is a giant frog on it. It's the Rainforest Cafe in downtown Chicago, the ugliest building ever. And there's a giant gorilla outside. I mean, obviously, <laughs> a bronze gorilla. I've driven by it every day all of my real estate life. I heard it was a play. There's seven owners. They're all in their 80s. They won't talk to each other. So that in itself is like something Kissinger would have gotten burnt on. But I got involved talking to them all. And a lot of people have no past on it because they're like, there's only a five year on the lease and it's $830,000 in income. And then what happens when it ends? Well, nobody stopped to think it's a land play where you get $800,000 plus of income because you can put 20 stories on top. So I bought it for just under $14 million with the air rights, how much you can build above it. In five years, of course, there will be dips in the market. But if you average it out in five to seven years, that's a 40 to $50 million site. It was sitting in front of everybody in the business who is much smarter than I am. But I drive around and I look at everything and I look at it twice. Mm. I want to make sure I understand that. And sometimes I ask people to speak very slowly to me so I can make sure, so I can make sure. And you, ex you explained it perfectly, but I want to make sure I'm understanding this right. You bought it for 14 million and included the air rights so that you can build above it and develop above. And after developing that, you'll have an asset that's worth a lot more than what you bought it for, right? So actually, so I will elaborate and be more specific. So right now, the Rainforest Cafe is in the bottom. Okay. When I redevelop it, I will have two stories of retail and then probably 15 to 20 stories of apartment buildings or a hotel. And I am saying the land is worth 40 to 50 million in five to seven years. Uh, the land will be worth it just because of appreciation or? You can build the building on top of it. The reason right now the value wasn't there, nobody was willing to buy it and sit on it they wanted it to be shovel ready. One piece of advice I would give to your listeners is nobody thinks long-term on anything because we're so used to instant gratification. If you mm -hmm. can take a long view, as I believe you do in your investments on real estate, time is always your friend in real estate if you finance it properly. Right. That's the key to financing it properly. Does the property for you cash flow in those years leading up to... 
we had to put 50% down. I bought it with one other partner. So we put 50% down. So it was a real cash commitment, right? We put $7 million down. But it covers everything, cash flows. It's a real nice hold. And then in four years' time, it's an incredible location. It's the corner of Maine and Maine. Opposite the Rock and Roll McDonald's, for those of you who've been through Chicago. So it's fantastic real estate. So you're saying you bought it for 14, you put seven into it, you're cash flowing, and then in five years, you are going to develop it. Is that correct? Well, I will probably have somebody who's much more confident than me develop it. I will JV it and roll it in at its new value. And you're projecting it will appreciate from 14 to just the land 50 million yeah, I mean, because of why? Well, because of once a tenant is out of there and it's unencumbered, you have a high rise site in downtown Chicago. And as presently, I've already received offers 25 to 30 million. So it's amazing how short term people are. Two years ago, they wouldn't buy it because the tenant was in there for six years. And now they're like, oh my God, we should have bought that. I'm with you. I completely understand now. Thank you for walking me through it. So because the tenant lease will be gone in five years, then you'll have a high rise. It's like a blank canvas and it does cash flow along the way. That from my experience is where people get into trouble with development and fix and flips in particular when the music stops on the lending and the home values and you don't have something that cash flows and you can't cover your expenses that's where you can get in the trouble. And I've gotten burnt like that. So when you'll see the deed Chicago on CNBC, I made those mistakes in the past. So when I'm teaching people now, it's not that I'm that smart. I've made all those mistakes. Mm -hmm. I've had lots of land, had thousands of acres of land. That was great till it wasn't. No cash flow. And when the banks wanted it paid off, I had to. Mm -hmm. Would you still buy land knowing that's the case? It's open to the risk like that? When I bought the land, I had no focus. I was focused on 20 different things, which is advice I would give to your listeners also, because I suspect if they're the best ever listeners, they'll hear these things. I would never rule land out. If you're thinking long-term and it's agricultural land or it really is development land, properly financed, and you can manage a couple of ups and downs on it, you'll still be okay. But having cash-flowing assets is such a safe way to go. You've mentioned properly financed a couple times. I want to make sure I understand. What does that mean when you mention? So, it generally means, and I'm going to make it very basic. I'm not going to get into all sorts of complicated stuff because I'm not that complicated. You can't have the thing levered like where you take out a 90% loan on it, right? So most of my real estate always had about 50% equity in it anyway. Now, in the world of 08, that nearly wasn't enough. So don't pull a load of money out. Don't have it levered up to 90% of the value. Leave the equity in there because you'll come to a point otherwise where you're going to be writing checks, which will freak you out. Do you have your own rule of thumb for a property or some land that if you were to buy it, the type of leverage that you would do now? Listen, I still think 50% is really safe. And that was always my rule of thumb. I think what we didn't expect in 2008 was that the banks would fail in front of us and you would have predatory hedge funds buying the loans and coming mm -hmm. after you. Mm -hmm. So nobody accounted for that. Yep, that makes sense. One thing that I personally have 
so much respect for immigrants who come to the country and you knew English, but sometimes they don't know English and yet they excel to a much higher level than those around them born in the United States who have seemingly so many opportunities right in front of them and have a competitive advantage over people who don't even know the language or in your case, don't have the network established within a community, whereas you had to create it. Do you believe there's any excuse for not reaching as high of a level as you've reached for others? None. So here, I grew up in the world that everybody wanted to come to America. Heads up, it hasn't changed. The most talented and ambitious people in the world want to come here. Wouldn't be a bad thing. It would keep some of us locals, because obviously if I have kids of the Americans, it would keep them on their toes a little bit, sharpen the competition. I would go to the library in our village, and obviously had your podcast been around at the time, I would have been one of your best ever listeners also. <laughs> but we didn't have a phone when I was 14. I would go to the library, and I read about Carnegie, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, this was the America I wanted to come to. So I came with an outside attitude to a place that I felt comfortable with in my head because we all grew up on it. John Wayne, Clint Eastwood. The world grew up on Americanism. It shouldn't be turned into a negative thing. There's still no greater place than America to be what you want to be. It is unbelievable. And people need to shake themselves off. There's nothing like it in the world for business opportunity. Nothing. Hasn't changed. You mentioned earlier something about instant gratification and how really we should take the long view with our investments. Is there a way that you teach people that so that it resonates, maybe showing them what you do or just giving them examples of your past investments? You know, it's so hard. You can't teach experience. You really can't. I wish I knew 20 years ago, what I knew today, I know you have a lot of apartment buildings. I sold some incredible real estate because I wanted to take the hit now. So mm -hmm. it's hard to teach that. But mm -hmm. if people would take a breath, I'm an overnight success in 25 years. <laughs> Seriously, I slogged along. I got knocked down. I tell people, you only fail when you stop trying. You should see how many times I said, oh, my God, I didn't just do that. But I only do it once. I tell people there's very little to be learned from the second kick from a mule. <laughs> so I've been kicked a lot, but once. <laughs> I would preach patience, but it's something people have to learn. What do you do consistently? Maybe ideally every day, but if not every day, then every week or on a regular basis that gets you to where you want to be professionally. So what has, because my life now is a little bit like a pinball ball. I bounce from place to place and thing to thing. But when I was in focused on the acquisition of real estate, every day I would walk the neighborhood, drive around the neighborhood, get a feel for what's going on. If something new is going on, I would talk to everybody. There's a reason during wars, spies got and talked to the local population. It's amazing the information you can gather on the street. I would talk to everybody in the neighborhood you want to work in. When you have those conversations, what information are you looking for and what type of questions do you ask? Well, firstly, you have to be kind of polite and subtle about it. It should be conversational. What's going on down the street with Mr. Jones' house? Oh, 
I see they're doing some work and they're what's going on and people invariably tell you. I bought a 260-room hotel, which subsequently became my worst deal ever because the doorman mentioned that there was a group in from New York running valuations on it because I used to chat with him every day to see what was going on in the neighborhood. Now, that's a bit of information I didn't need in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that hotel for a second. And then I want to talk about some fix and flip stuff that the show revolves around. But that hotel, can you elaborate on the deal? Yeah, it's a perfect example of I had incredible trajectory upwards. I went from being an assistant janitor to probably being the top broker in North America in like a six-year period. So I'm like running around. I get the heads up on this deal, buy a 260-room hotel in downtown Chicago. Now, they say in Latin, Neil Admiri, be surprised by nothing. Don't get too confident. There's always something that might come out of the blue and sucker punch you. Well, September 11 happened a couple of weeks before we closed. We were hard on the money. We turned down a flip on it. We bought it for $17 million and we turned down a flip on it. And I was now, in hindsight, I'd gotten out of my lane. I used to run cross-country high school, and the guy who used to coach me always said, you run your own race. I was like, that's a stupid statement. Of course I run my own race. Who else is running it? But what he meant was I looked at the finish line, right? I didn't look behind me. I didn't look left or right. If you compare yourself to other people, and if you look back, which there are no look backs in life, you will perpetually be unhappy. There's always somebody with a bigger boat, a bigger jet. So... I stopped running my own race. I was looking around at all these guys who were in hotels and funds, not realizing I was incredibly successful in my own arena. I decided I was going to be a financier, hotel guy, and I knew nothing about hotels. It was a nightmare. It nearly strangled me. But I got up every day and went back at it until I got out of it. You bought it for $17 million. What did you turn down the flip for? How much did they want to pay? Well, we're probably going to make three or four million on a quick flip, which is an amazing amount of money. But mm-hmm. I'm only telling you a little part of it. I was also on the hook at that stage because we started half construction for a $70 million loan. Mm. Yeah, that's a big number. That'll do it. And my partners have decided they didn't like being on that loan. So they were <laughs> not going to be. I mean, yikes. You'll see it on my show or something like, no, you can't not be on the loan. You are. <laughs> <laughs> what ended up happening with the hotel? What'd you sell it for? I ended up in the end, it's quite interesting, two years of hell, and there was a partner who really wanted the deal, so he bought me out for my equity. Mm. He was an incredibly wealthy person anyway. I think he subsequently lost tens of millions on it, but he could afford it, so and he wanted it. Mm-hmm. it helps with taxes. Yeah, close escape, but the lesson for your listeners is stick to what you know mm-hmm. and be the best at what you do. Don't try and be good at lots of things. That was my big flaw there. What aspect of real estate do you know the best? And then within that, what are you best in class doing? Here's what I would tell you I do. I connect the dots, A, on a deal like nobody. So opportunistic acquisition, commercial or residential, I do. But my real skill is people. I can read people. I know who to connect to who. And that's what a real merchant bank does. So I get paid for putting together funding. I get paid for putting together deals, and I take a piece of them. So what am I best in class at? I can connect people from one end of the globe to the other with a couple of thoughts. I can connect all the dots. That's what I do. And actually, to go back to when I was a broker, what set me apart from everybody? By 96, 
let's say you were coming home from your accountancy job and you're like, I want to be a developer. People say, go see Sean Conlon. So you would come in the door. I would have a set of plans for you. I would have a piece of land that I tied up because at that point I had the capital to tie it up. I would have a GC for you. I would have the bank that would fund it and obviously the brokerage that would sell it. I was one-stop shopping. So you're walking home and like coming home to your wife, hey, honey, I got a puppy. Some guys would arrive home like, hi, honey, I dropped in to see Sean Conlon. I'm a developer. And hundreds of people, I met developers in Chicago. Mm. You could come in the door and leave with everything. Huh. For better or worse? Yeah. For, well, <laughs> listen, the great thing about it is there was an incredible upsurge at the time. So yeah. anyone who did business with me from 96, and I retired from selling in 2000, mm -hmm. everybody who did business with me, except the complete idiots met <laughs> I want to ask one more question about the hotel thing, and then I want to talk about fix and flips. You said that the lesson there is stick to what you know. Yes. That leads me to believe that you weren't an expert at hotels at that time. The purchase price was $17 million. Was that all your money? Or did you bring in partners? We financed that. So myself and one other. Okay. So you financed it. That's what I thought. You financed it yourself, one other partner. And I'm not asking this question for best ever listeners to go out and convince people to invest in things they don't have experience in. I'm going to ask this question because it's going to be interesting to hear how you are able to basically sell in a project where you weren't an expert in that category. So how did you sell in the project to your other partner, even though you didn't have an expertise in hotels? My other partner had done some deals with me. Secondly, the real estate was incredible real estate. Thirdly, the plan was actually not to be a hotel. We were going to convert it to condos. Mm. So I was best in class there. Got it. Being the genius 30-year-olds that we were, we're like, <laughs> let's run it as a hotel for a year. What could go wrong? <laughs> we're losing eight hundred, nine hundred thousand 900000 a month. So does that explain it? Yeah, I'm hyperventilating a little bit by you saying that, by the way. <laughs> like, look. Got rid of all that hair up there. Yeah, that's good. All right, so now let's talk about fix and flips. That's what the show is focused on, right? Fix and flips? The show is basically the deed, right? Chicago. And it's on this Wednesday in CNBC, so I'd love your listeners to check in and see it. But it's basically people who go out and think they can do flips and get over their ski tips and pitch me to borrow money off me, but not just money, my expertise, to get them out of the bind. That's what we do. It's a lot of fun, this show. People really enjoyed the first episode last week. It's quite lively. And it's Wednesdays at what time? 9 Central Time. 9 p.m. Central Time. So 10 p.m. Eastern on CNBC, Wednesday nights. We will tune in for that. We'll even have a little watching party. What's the most ignorant thing, and it doesn't have to be on this show, but just in general, that you've seen a fix and flipper do that you're like, what the heck are you talking about? Oh, my God. They're too numerous to list. People never cease to amaze me with how stupid they are. Like, if you look at YouTube and you think of the most stupid thing ever, then you get into property flipping. Like, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> this week, get an example, and it's an interesting story, and I actually turned out to really like the guys, but they bought a property at auction. And this is not the most ignorant, but it's fascinating. They uh -huh. bought a property at auction. And they were driving by admiring the property. And then eventually a woman came out and said, get off my lawn. <laughs> this is not the house you bought. They bought the wrong house. So if they want to cross the street. <laughs> it's hilarious. And I love the guys. I'm like, you should see me in the show. I'm like, are you joking me? 
I mean, I was gobsmacked. They bought the wrong house. They were fixing up her house, even though it was. No, their... they were standing in front, admiring it, getting ready for the closing and everything. And it was only too late they realized that that was not the house. It was the ugly cousin across the street. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So I watch Shark Tank. Yeah. No, it's, I'll watch it's your great. show. And sh- yeah, yes. yeah. Shark Tank. So it's great. You can watch Shark yeah. Tank on Wednesday and it leads right into me. Yeah. And I've seen your ads where I guess it was advertising this one particular thing. You would tell the backstory on that. So I'm glad that you did. Yeah. Is, but I've seen just so much stuff. I mean, people, listen, I still think flipping is the greatest path for your average American to build an empire. There's no question about it. I say this all the time, so I don't mean to be repetitive. The odds of you or I becoming Zuckerberg or Michael Dell, we have a better chance of getting hit by a meteorite right now and then Giselle coming and picking me up and bringing me home. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. That's a zero, 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 one percent. We could go out and make it flipping, mm-hmm. but we will make mistakes. What do we have to have as a skill set to make it in flipping? Because I personally think... I would be disastrous at flipping homes, just disastrous. What do we have to have as a skill set to be excellent at flipping? I suspect you're being modest. So first things first, as Johnny Cash used to say, you need some gravel in your belly because flipping is a scary roller coaster of an experience. But it helps, let's say you have a partner or you has a construction skill, maybe you're a carpenter. But don't be a designer. Nobody cares about your Versace wallpaper. You're not an interior designer. And this is what I tell people all the time. You're fixing a home as generic and beautiful as possible to flip it. So it's good to have an understanding of maybe a construction trade. And if not, a fantastic GC. The GC is so important, and I talk about that all the time. Mm-hmm. Because that's where most people fail down. They get ripped off by the GC. I would also say you have to have a real attention to time management, as you touched on earlier about my work ethic. Mm -hmm. Don't do busy work. You're going to have schedules. Remember, a flip will kill you because it's time sensitive. An investment time is your friend, a long-term investment. Mm -hmm. They're very different. You mentioned earlier, think long-term, and you just mentioned it again. Have a long view with your investments, but a flip is not a long-term investment. A flip is how somebody like me got my initial equity to do these deals. So I would love to have rocked into the marketplace and bought apartment buildings with a long-term view. That's the dream, really, and retail rentals. Mm -hmm. But I needed the equity initially. So I did some flips because I understood the arbitrage. I was between the land and people who needed it. That's where I got my initial equity. I did fix up houses and flip them. That was how I got my equity. And then when I had enough... I would buy some apartment buildings and some retail because that is what you would retire on. Sean, I've got a page of notes already. What's your best real estate investing advice ever? Think long-term. Take your time. Stop looking at what everybody else is doing. Run your own race. I'm going to use that quote from your cross-country coach many times. I like that. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, I think I am. All right. Well, I think we'll do it then. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. 
adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Previous best ever guest, Paul Moore, has a book and it's called The Perfect Investment Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. If you're ready to profit from this unprecedented shift, then go get the book. It's on Amazon or Paul's website, wellingscapital.com. What's the best ever book you've read? I love City of Thieves because it's ironic, it's fabulous, and it's short. But one other I have to mention, the Wright Brothers, because it's America. These two guys in Ohio said, hey, we're going out to the field tonight to learn to fly. Everyone in the town said, these guys are complete lunatics. They learn to fly. Love it. So American. What's the best ever personal growth experience and what did you learn from it? It's my saddest and it's also the best ever. Uh, my father dying at 56 in 2000. He was the reason I did everything I did. And it taught me that we're here for a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. So try and enjoy your life also. What's the best ever deal you've done? The best ever deal I've done are the two deals I didn't do in 2007. I was going to build two high rises. I had everything mm-hmm. lined up, the $100 million in financing. And for some reason, I didn't do them. I'm not going to say I saw it coming because I got dinged in a way. But those two, I'm like, this is too much. It scares me. I'm not smart enough to do it. They were the best deals I ever didn't do. Have you done a project of that size since? I've taken back projects of that size. (laughs) I know you're from Texas. We took back a 22-story tower in Austin, Mm -hmm. which ended up being a great deal for us. I took back 350 units in the hills in Austin, Texas, which turned out to be great. So, yes, I've not built them. I've taken them back. And taking them back, you're referring to your, as the lender, they didn't pay their debt service, so you get the property. Got it. When you take it back, what's your business plan with it? (laughs) Pray. (laughs) (laughs) We took these back. After the crisis, we had no plan. Like I said earlier, our business plan was like a pinball ball. We bounced from crisis to crisis. But we took back assets we believed in and subsequently then had to start over, roll our sleeves up and get them finished. And they all worked out really well. Mm. But time, it was a six-year process. Mm -hmm. What's the best ever way you like to give back? A couple of things. I'm obviously was very good to my father. The first cool thing I ever did was buy him a Mercedes for Christmas because when we were young, he used to bring us up and look in the dealership window and point out that that was for some rich guy. So one Christmas, when I was about 25, 26, we went up there and I bought it from the one that was sitting in the window. I have a wildlife foundation. And while this might sound slightly self-promoting, I think the deed, Chicago, I give back knowledge I've learned to people all over the country now, which is great. Mm -hmm. But my wildlife foundation is my passion. Animals. What would you say, and we've talked about some, is a mistake you've made on a particular deal? The mistake I've made on a particular deal is there's an expression I use quite regularly, trust but verify. I was told the zoning was such, and the guy told me it with such a sense of belief I forgot the fact that the guy might have been a sociopath, so I bought something that was not zoned appropriately. Yikes. So I thought I could put 25 units on it, and I could put four or five. That's a big difference. That's quite a big difference. (laughs) Even someone with my positive nature, I'm like, Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, before we wrap up, 
Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention to the best ever listeners? I would just say to the best ever listeners, when you first in real estate, long-term, best long-term, listen to your podcast because I can tell you have figured a lot of this stuff out. You're obviously quite modest about it. B, don't panic because when you panic, you lose complete control. Take a breath and step back. In the First World War, there's a great expression, stay alive till the morning because someday maybe the war will end and you'll be fine. Don't panic. If you're having a terrible day, go home to bed and get up. It won't seem as bad, and you'll work through the bits and pieces. Put it into little chunks. Don't panic. Mm -hmm. And it is the greatest way still, real estate in America, to become a multimillionaire. No question. Where can the best ever listeners get in touch with you and learn more about your show? I have a website, seanconlon.com, and I have an email there and phone number and stuff. And I'd love Yes, and I'd love them to watch the show on Wednesday night. The Deed, CNBC, Chicago. When we watch the show and we're enjoying it, is there anything you'd like for us to do? Should we tweet CNBC? Should we Absolutely. Just, what should uh, we do? I'm, I'm understanding anything like tweeting. I was very flattered that the Ranzics tweeted on this show and all sorts of people like that. So and I met Bill in 96 before he became The Apprentice when he was uh, wanting to do real estate and he came to sit with me and he became my tenant. So that was exciting. And he understands the show and lots of other people. So tweeting and CNBC getting the vibe and share it with other people. Say, hey, check this out. I spoke on uh, the CNBC in the morning on morning breakfast show there mm-hmm. about glass hammers, which is a joke. We used to send people out to buy glass hammers. Well, you obviously don't get glass right. hammers. So it was a fun interview, which you will be able to dig up too. Well, Sean, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I mean, this was a conversation about being focused and being effective with our time. You talked about how you were at the, not janitor, but assistant janitor, and you were also at night doing the real estate agent stuff, and then ultimately you were able to get some deals done, being focused on teardown and zoning as your area of expertise, having conversations with people in the neighborhood, talking to them about what's going on in the neighborhood every day, walking, driving the neighborhood, and then evolving from there, becoming right around 1999, 2000, $200 million in sales, and then going from these large projects, which most recently buying the high-rise site in downtown Chicago. I love the story of how you approached it with the seven different owners that wouldn't talk to each other and the tenant that's got this five-year lease and your approach to be conservative too. I mean, putting down 50% of the 14 million, 7 million, that's a large chunk and great leverage for you that cash flows while you wait and do your long-term play with it. And then the cautionary tales too of the 260 room hotel in Chicago along with some of the other things we talked about. And really grateful, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think anything inspires me more than immigrants who come to the U.S. and just do phenomenal things, and you certainly are at the top of the class. Thanks for being on the show. Great Thank you for having me on the show. Obviously, your show is fantastic. I've read all about it now. I'm now a new follower. And thank you for appreciating immigrants. Love America. I'm an American citizen now. And I'm talking to you today from my beach house in Malibu that I bought with commissions I saved 15 years ago. And that was as an immigrant. I had an account with my commission saved in it. 
That's America. That's America, baby. Thank you so much. Hope you you have the best ever day. We'll talk to you soon. Best ever listener. Previous best ever guest Paul Moore has a book and it's called The Perfect Investment Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. If you're ready to profit from this unprecedented shift, then go get the book. It's on Amazon or Paul's website, wellingscapital.com.